Welcome to the Five Seven Podcast. I'm your host Pre, and today we are joined by Mike Glover from uh, Prescott, Arizona. How you doing, Mike? What's going on, man? How are you? Good, good. How's the weather out there? Oh, it's beautiful, man. It, it's weird because it was kind of sunny today, and then it snowed for a period of time, and then it got sunny again. So it's pretty nice, though. I love it here. Generally, what's the weather like in um, in the winter time out there? Uh, you know, it's 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 typically in the 40s and 50s. Typically. Uh, gets down in the freezing temperatures at night, but it's just, I mean, at, you're at 5,000 feet, so you get the sun, so it just stays warm enough in the sun. It just, it's perfect temperature. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, we're in we're in Chicago, man, and uh, all the Chicagoland area and out here, dude, it gets absolutely unbelievably cold in the wintertime, and then the summertime, it gets unbelievably hot. You had that brutal cold snap recently that was like negative brutal yeah yeah they said it got down to like like minus 52 or something like that and they practically closed down they're they're closed everywhere is practically closed down you know it's really crazy because they were showing pictures of it you know like chicago from a distance and it looked like somebody built like a gigantic city on the north pole (laughs) awesome so uh i was wondering if you could uh if you could give an introduction of yourself to our listeners yeah, absolutely. I was uh, I was a military guy. I spent uh, nearly twenty years, well, twenty years between the military and the government. I uh, did um, most of my time in special forces. So I did four years in the infantry and the rest of the time in special forces, all the all the way through global war and terror. Got out. Um, still transitioned as a master sergeant to the National Guard component, where I was in nineteenth uh, group. And then took a team there, made Sergeant Major. And so I did the Sergeant Major thing between uh, contracting for the U.S. government for about two and a half, three years. And then this was about a couple of years ago. I decided to uh, start a company called Philcraft Survival. And I did that. Uh, I committed to that uh, probably about three years ago full time. So I've been doing that ever since. I'm the owner of Philcraft Survival. And, and we're based in uh, Prescott, Arizona. And we specialize in you know training civilians military and law, law enforcement, which is pretty much everybody on the planet, um, and being prepared, being trained, uh, having the right mindset, and then providing the right equipment um, and everything in preparedness. What made you want to join the military? Uh, you know, at 17 years old, um, my dad uh, served in the United States Army, and my uncle was in the Navy. I come from a, a pretty deeply rooted military background. And it's just something that I always wanted to do. I mean, I, I remember making bets with my dad as a young boy that I was going to be in special forces. And it's all I knew. I mean, I played army. So it was a natural transition from being a kid to being an adult to being in the army. Yeah, that's kind of funny. When I was a kid, my grandfather was in World War II. I had a cousin that died in Vietnam. And uh, I had an uh, uncle that was in the Korean War. And uh, it's kind of funny, you know, when you're when you're in kind of a when your family has like a military background, you kind of, um, you know, you kind of lean that way towards a bit, you know, and, you know, I was always playing, playing around with guns and stuff. And I was, you know, as a kid, and I don't know how many kids are able to do that nowadays, you know, but, uh, it seems like it, the most of the time, the, it comes from, um, uh, you know, most of the people in the military, I forget the statistic, it's almost in the 90 percentile, but it's, uh, most of them that serve come from military families. So it's just, it's ingrained in the family DNA. 
So you were uh, 11 Bravo, and then you decided to uh, – what you, you just went to a selection, special forces selection? Yep. I did uh, four years in the infantry. I actually had a little break in service right before uh, 9-11 and decided to go back in and then actually came off the streets kind of a, like in the 18X-ray program. Um, really, it wasn't like the 18 X-ray program because I didn't have to go through SOPC basic AIT because I was already qualified. So I went straight to, to selection, and then I uh, became an 18 Bravo as an MOS, uh, which is a Special Forces Weapons Sergeant in the Army. Where were you during 9/11? Uh, during 9/11, I was actually on terminal leave. Um. Well, I just came off terminal leave. I actually, my first ETS date or get, get out of the army date was September 9th of 01. Wow. And yeah, I had transitioned in the National Guard and four, did four years in the infantry and was going to college. And so I was in Fayetteville Technical Community College uh, trying to get my degree when uh, that happened. Yeah, I was mixing concrete on a job site and uh, I was like 19 years old and 9-11 happened and I was like, yeah, I got to go do something. <laughs> so when you went to uh, SF selection, what was your mindset like Like uh, beforehand? You know, were you like, uh, did you train at all? You know, did you get advice from anybody? You know, like what were you like, what was going on in your mind? Well, I, you know, in, when I was in the infantry, I did a whole bunch of things trying to make myself better. You know, I, I – uh, I did four years in the infantry. I uh, went to ranger school, went to airborne school. You know, I got my expert infantry badge when I was like an E1. Holy and smoke. So, yeah. And then, you know, I, I did everything that I could do as a young infantryman because I wanted to, to be squared away. And I made E5 when I was 20 years old. So I, I fast-tracked pretty fast. And so I was a young sergeant and uh, super motivated. But at the time, there wasn't anything going on. So obviously with nothing going on, um, I decided to get out because, you know, I, I joined the army to fight and, you know, represent the, the nation in that capacity. And obviously there was nothing going on in that time period. So I committed to getting out and shortly thereafter was uh, trying my best to get back in. So I would say from like maybe today and like back then, you know, how was your how was your fitness? Like how did you train? say maybe 20 years ago to how you train today? You know, it's a big difference. I, I, I was pretty smart on physical fitness. Um, but a lot of things that I teach today, I learned those hard lessons. Um, like I had a young man come to uh, my business today and I gave him a physical fitness test. And back in the day, you know, you just kind of suck it up and drive on. That was kind of the motive. That was the, the way you did everything to get, get through something. And, um, nutritionally, you know, if you were in pain, you just, they told you just to drink more water. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was always drink, drink water, when in doubt, drink water. And so, uh, nutritionally, um, you know, we've definitely, I've definitely advanced as an athlete or as a uh, person just in doing the research. And so that, that, ha that transition happened in my special operations career, but, you know, I was really fit as a young uh, infantry guy. I mean, I, I used to max out the PT test, you know, I do a hundred pushups, hundred sit-ups easily and then max my run typically. And so I was always in decent shape and I could carry a ruck and, you know, for anybody who's been in combat arms with the infantry or even the military knows that if you could do physical training and you do it well, that's really half the battle because 
you're gauged a lot based off your physical fitness level. So I've definitely come a long way since since then. Um, not as in good shape as I used to be, but I've gotten smarter in my old age as far as um, developing as a person. And you know, but I I would always uh, say that as a young guy, I was prepared for you know everything, and then learned a lot of hard lessons along the way that made me who I am today. What kind of workouts were you doing, say, maybe 20 years ago compared to what you're doing today? Uh, a good example would be uh, – a great example would be something I just talked about with this kid today was uh, a long time ago, we used to think that uh, to get better at running, you had to run. And uh, ironically enough, it's not the case. Like uh, uh, running as – as in just running doesn't do a lot for you because you're not stressing your body. You're not stressing your central nervous system or your, um, your heart rate, which in turn is how you maximize your cardiovascular output or increase your VO2 max. And so now, or even in my special operations career, I started learning that high intensity interval training, which is, can be done in short spurts of, you know, running, uh, at a fast pace, at a high intensity, with a high heart rate, and then followed by a, a period of recovery, and then setting that or, or repping that for about 10 sets, which you could accomplish in about 20 minutes, is uh, scientifically proven to be more advantageous in cardiovascular uh, output. And so if you want to increase your cardiovascular fitness, that's the way to do it. Well, when I was young, it was just like, hey, if you want to get better at running, just run harder. Well, that's not how you do it. There's there's actually a, a science behind it. And Tabata and high-intensity interval training, uh, CrossFit, uh, that's why these things have become so popular because that's how you see vast uh, cardiovascular results by doing those kind of things. You know, It's a whole working smarter, not harder thing. Are, are, you, a, uh, are you a CrossFit fan? Uh, I am to an extent, you know, I, I actually got level one certified, uh, you know, over a decade ago before CrossFit even was really mainstream and I took a lot from it and I'm, I'm more about the, uh, more about the endurance versions of it. Like they had, they used to have like a CrossFit endurance or CrossFit, um, uh, you know, military athlete, um, those kind of things I'm into. What the pro- the only problem I've seen in CrossFit is the amount of injuries that could take place for with young men and women who aren't you know uh, you know guys and gals start gyms in CrossFit um, with minimal training and then they if they're bad coaches a lot of people will get injured and I think uh, when you're when you're doing something at such high intensity and you're lobbing around a weight that's a a heavier weight trying to go faster for times or you know, or trying to meet the standard, um, you you run the risk of getting injured. And that's the only problem that I have with uh, with CrossFit. Something I've noticed about CrossFit, it's it seems that um, like you you know, like you said, it seems like everybody's like in a race for something. And well well I guess in a competition that's okay, but that's that doesn't really seem conducive to to having a an effective workout. Do you know what I mean? No, a hundred percent. And I agree. I actually educate people on this. I, you know, if you look at what, if you look at what exercise is or physical training is the, you know, physical, physical training as a protocol is 
they're breaking your body down to recover um, and to build off of that base. Well, if you look at CrossFit competitions or the way that you do CrossFit, you try to make your functional movement more efficient. So you're, you're, you're literally looking for efficiency and shortcuts, which means it's almost like counterintuitive when you actually think about what exercise is, is because uh, through those movements, you're kind of like cutting out the friction. And so that, that friction is what you're looking for. And so when you add a time standard to it, which is to me a problem, when you add a time standard to a clean, uh, to an overhead press, to all these dynamic movements, and then you add more reps, which is the ultimate way that you measure um, performance in CrossFit, which is via time and via uh, reps, uh, you run the risk of one, injury, but two, of becoming so efficient that it defeats the purpose of uh, kind of training period. And, you know, guys and gals who do CrossFit, they're super fit, uh, but there comes a point to where uh, you kind of have to evolve. And if you're getting so efficient at the movement, uh, which kind of defeats the purpose of breaking yourself down, then you have to ask yourself, if, you know, is that the end all be all? And I think CrossFit in one spectrum of working out, which is like kind of like a, one way to do it. Uh, there's a, many other ways to, to do it to improve your overall fitness. It seems that, you know, whenever you see videos of people doing CrossFit or at least the pros, they're like, uh, you know, they'll do a workout or a wad, a workout of the day. And uh, afterwards, they're, you know, they're falling on the ground, getting ready to pass out. Do you, th- do you think that that's, you know, like safe or effective for like the, you know, the average person? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, it's, it's just, it's not. I mean, the bottom line is there's so many things leading up to that point that you need to focus on. One of them would be Olympic weightlifting, for example. And I think when you're doing, um, when you're, when you're looking at functional movement and you're looking at strict Olympic style lifting, it's very regimented and it's very slow and deliberate as far as the overall, when you compare it to uh, CrossFit. And so when you turn Olympic style lifts, which are very dangerous in the first place as far as injury, and you take a novice person and then you accelerate it through timeline, you run the risk of seriously debilitating people for, for life. And that's, that's pretty scary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff, when you're doing like the rings and stuff, I mean, I could see people throwing out a dislocating a shoulder trying to do that stuff. Oh, absolutely. I've seen dudes completely rip their shoulders out of sockets. I've even had some wow. injuries my, from CrossFit with uh, my elbow. And, um, it, you know, there's there's a certain segment of our population that, you know, they live in – they work in cubicles. I mean, they they work corporate jobs and their their job isn't to be physical. And so I get it. I get the, I get the catch. I get the allure of CrossFit. But as a special operations guy – or as a firefighter, or as a police officer, or somebody who does something physical for a living, uh, I would never run that risk. I would never take that chance. What advice would you have for people who do um, who do sit in a cubicle, you know, all day, and they want to get it, you know, they want to work out? Like, how would you advise them to work out effectively? Uh, I think the you know a sedentary life, which is um, you know m- more so than ever in history. Uh, we're living more sedentary lives because of technology in the, I mean, the information and technology field is a vast, it's the, the fastest growing and the largest demographic of career, 
career fields in the nation. I, I think there, when you live a nine to five sedentary life, and then the highlight of your day is that one hour of physical movement and activity, you have to really focus that on being uh, fit the right way. And what I always tell people is it's not, you, you can't think about what you're actually doing in the gym as uh, a way to measure overall performance or health and fitness, but look at what that one hour does for you the rest of the day. So I tell people to focus on like, you know, that high intensity interval training, focus on shocking that central nervous system, because if you do that, it kind of disrupts your, your physical system to be able to burn calories over the long haul in a sedentary life. I'm not a big fan of, uh, chest and tries back and buys, you know, legs and abs, but in a sedentary style life, I recommend that because you want to build a base for muscle where you're burning more calories when you're sitting on your butt, uh, than somebody who's more active. Like a lot of people who try to build muscle and they're a firefighter, they're a cop, they're a, a military guy. It's very hard to retain that muscle if you're very active because muscle doesn't like to sit around when you're, um, doing endurance type things or endurance type activities. So I, you know, I recommend people hit the gym and actually lift weights because that's real good for you when you're sitting, sitting on your butt and then also focus that in uh, a good recipe with high intensity interval training or, um, you know, something like a uh, interval on a treadmill, a bike, a row uh, to break up the, the, the muscular strength exercises they're doing during the week. Now, a lot of those people, too, they have uh, – because I, I live in around a, a gigantic metropolitan area, and a lot of people do have that life. And um, I know that you're a you, – um, you do the keto diet, don't you? Yeah, I do. I and, do. I, I, uh, I definitely do. And I was wondering if you could talk about the keto diet and, you know, precisely, you know, like what it is and how you have uh, incorporated it into your life because it seems there's a lot of misconceptions about it. And, you know, some people say that, you know, they, uh, they're like, well, you know, you should have, you know, more carbs in your diet. And I don't believe in a diet that has, you know, no carbs and no fat. And from what I know, the keto diet is a high fat diet, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, so the the keto diet, you're you're absolutely right. There's a lot of miseducation and misinformation about what it is to begin with. I mean, a lot of people can can uh, confuse the keto diet with the Atkins diet, where it's uh, the Atkins diet is nothing but high in fat, saturated fat, but high in protein, as opposed to the keto diet, which is high in fat. It's about sixty to seventy percent of your overall diet is is polymonosaturated fat or saturated fats. And the key component to understand is, you know, ancestrally we evolved um, through feast and famine. You know, we, we evolved in these primal states where we hunted and we gathered and there would be periods where we wouldn't, you know, we'd go on a hunt and then we wouldn't be successful. And so we come back to the village or we come back to our people and we would have a period of famine or we go out and we'd be successful and then we would feast a large amount of not just meat but organ meat, brain meat, uh, tendons, um, basically the entire animal in different segments, which, which means that we were eating 
not just protein, but vitamins and essential amino acids and minerals that we are sourcing from the animals that we are eating. So partly it's primal. So what the keto diet is, is uh, some people consider a metabolic reset. And I'd, I'd agree to that. And I'll explain that in a second. But what it is, is when you deplete your body of carbohydrates and sugars, you are essentially running your body out of glycogen. And your body has a great way of adapting to that by uh, utilizing and leveraging the fat cells or triglycerides and fat to resource as an energy. Um, and, and what it's doing is instead of utilizing that glycogen or that carbohydrate, which is, has a short you know, flash to burn, um, it's utilizing the triglyceride uh, that's inside the fat in order to feed your organs, your brain, your body. And the way you accomplish this is through through ketones um, that basically uh, fill your bloodstream that your body adapts to and and develops more of in order to compensate for the lack of carbohydrates and sugar. And what I always try to remind people is before um, a few revolutions, one of them being the Industrial Revolution, but uh, also the Agricultural Revolution, we didn't eat carbohydrates the way we eat carbohydrates now. In fact, a lot of the food that we ate, it was natural whole foods. And the way we sourced our sugar was in fructose from fruit, but it was limited in resources. And we didn't have Doritos and Rice Krispie treats. And um, even what we see is healthier foods like multi-grain um, anything. You know, people don't understand that multi-grain in a lot of ways is a refined carbohydrate that essentially uh, we our bodies treat as sugar. So carbohydrates is basically a super fuel that our system isn't used to operating with. So prior to the, ninth, the early 1900s, we didn't have that. So the problem is now that we have gotten used to it, we go through this roller coaster of uh, physical distress because our blood sugar is out of whack. You know, the statistics I like to throw around is 100 million people out of a population of a few hundred million people. Uh, it's actually closer. I think it's closer to 270 million people in the United States. 100 million people, one third of our population has type 2 diabetes, which is onset diabetes or on, the, or on their way to type 2 uh, diabetes, which means they're pre-diabetic in the next five years, they'll be diagnosed with type 2. 100 million people. Wow. Um, 37, this, or the statistic is 39.7 people, 39.7% of the population of America are considered obese. Now, there's a, a body mass index, BMI is how we uh, measure that. And so there are some people like me, I'm 225 pounds, six foot one, so I'm considered obese by the standard, but, but my body type isn't the standard. So for the most part, there, a large percentage of our population is obese. That's not because – well, that's, a, that's because of sedentary lifestyle, but more so that's because of the diets that we're eating. You know, I, I see people uh, utilize the World Health Organization and the CDC as the recommendation for sugar intake. And I think the, uh, the last recommendation was 12 teaspoons of, uh, um, of sugar. And so, holy shit! 
Yeah, 12 teaspoons. And so when you look at, which I think it equates to 50 grams. So when you look at uh, the overall health state of our uh, nation, um, people are not healthy. And then I recommend the keto diet because it, one, it's a metabolic reset. If you do it right, it will set you up for success for being healthier long term. Yeah, um, I think that people in general, like their their diets are just, you know, they're just garbage, you know. And you know, so, you know, someone will say, "Yeah, I'm, I'm eating pretty healthy," you know, and and they're like, "Yeah, I had, uh, you know, I had chicken and potatoes and uh, and broccoli," you know. And then for breakfast, they have like a, be- a breakfast burrito from Taco Bell, you know. And it's like you're throwing away, you know, all of the good things that you eat when you eat, you know, trash like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think the problem is our, our overall perception of what healthy food has is, period, it is skewed. Because, you know, the, the, the statistic is 60 to 70% of all the food in our grocery stores is fake food. It's not even real food. It's, it's preservative-based artificial food. And so when you buy something in a package and it says non-GMO organic multigrain, that doesn't mean it's healthy. In fact, uh, a lot of that food, um, because people assume it's healthy and then they overconsume it, becomes a staple to an unhealthy diet. And I think the overall problem is uh, the way we look at our food consumption based on our supply chain. I mean, grocery stores are not in the business of selling healthy food. Um, if they were, they'd be Whole Foods and it'd be twice as expensive. Um, and it's it's not the best business model. They're in the business of selling Velveeta, you know, cheese in a you know foil package that is full of preservatives that is cheap, and then they could sell you know in ten times the volume than they can of something that's healthy. So you know, I think our overall perception of of food period in our, in our country is skewed. I mean, the reason, um, you know, like the Okinawans who are one of the healthiest populations of people in the world, they eat most of their food from whole food sources, meaning real food sources. And that's a staple to a healthy diet. I mean, how much food can we say on a daily basis comes from whole real foods? It's probably rare. Yeah. And, you know, considering how many people that we have living in the United States, you know, how would we, if you really think about it, how would we be able to, to really grow, you know, enough food for everybody, you know? Yeah, that's, and, and that's a good point. That's the overall issue. The overall issue is, look, our country is not massive. I mean, by any scale, we're a small country compared to the rest of the world. I mean, China and uh, India that have billions of people and we're sitting on a quarter of a, of a billion people. That's not a lot of people. But we love protein and, you know, 56 billion farm animals are harvested every year in America. 56 billion. We eat a couple hundred pounds of meat per person per year and we can't keep up with it. So you're right. The, the, the demand, especially in epicenters like Chicago, where people, uh, you know, are densely populated in a small segmented area. You have to have the grocery, uh, the grocery stores and then the whole food sources of seafood, of farm food, of whole food, healthy food are limited and scarce in resources. And then you have to, you have to bring up the fact that even the whole foods that we think are whole foods are full of hormones, 
full of uh, antibiotics um, that are grown on farms because you know they pump them full of uh, uh, hormones because they have to grow them bigger than the, bigger than the natural environment would allow it, and they have to harvest them and they have to keep them healthy. So the cows, the pigs, the chickens are all pumped with antibiotics to keep them healthy because they're getting sick because they're stacked on top of each other and they're getting all these uh, diseases and all these viruses. And so when you look at the whole food that you actually can consume, that 30% of real food in the grocery stores, that food in itself isn't always the healthiest option. So it's it's a dire and, uh, dis- and, and distressful situation. So yeah, it's difficult. It makes you wonder, you know, kind of like in 2008 when the housing market crashed, it makes you wonder when, you know, when this is going to come to a head, you know, when the system is going to fail and, and uh, you know, we're not going to know what to do. Well, I, I think it's already failing and the, the result that you track is how many people die every year of heart disease. And that number is about 600,000 people a year. Um, it's the leading cause of death in America and, and including cancer. So if you take cancer and you take um, and you take heart disease, um, million uh, over a million people a year in America alone die of this, and so that's the direct result. Um, you know, there's other variables involved, but if you look at the uh, the amount of time you spend consuming food, and then what it's what it the impact it has on health, the overall impression, and I think the science will tell you that uh, it's already showing in the fact that it's killing our country I and mean, it's killing us. Yeah. Especially when you, t- when you turn on the TV and Wendy's has a commercial for a, a triple baconator and you look at all that cheese and shit, you know, it's like, Oh my God, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the food market's doing very well in, uh, in America and it always has. And the, the fast food industry leads that charge. I mean, it's, it's ironic to me that, you know, when we talk about uh, the gun community, for example, we attack, uh, the gun community because of its of its association with mass shooters, but do we question McDonald's, um, you know, or do we question Coca Cola? There's actually an interesting statistic that says uh, if you drink one Coca Cola per day, you increase your chance of uh, type two diabetes by forty percent. Uh, that's a huge and alarming statistic, and so. If you if you actually cared about the people when analyzing these statistics as a, a way to debate the issues, then you would immediately start attacking not the gun industry because the gun industry doesn't kill a lot of people as compared to uh, the industries of fast food and all the unhealthy things that we're putting in our body. Don't they say that cheese is the the leading uh, the leading agent to causing heart attacks in the United States? Cheddar cheese. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at if you look at uh, especially um, if you look at uh, the preservatives in in cheese, the, the natural uh, natural cheese has a lot of benefits to uh, your natural biome, your gut biome. Um, has a, a lot of good fat properties. Has a lot of good bacteria. That's good for a whole bunch of uh, a myriad of he- of health uh, benefits. But when you look at cheese as a staple pasteurized cheese, um, the majority of it's fake cheese. In fact, the slices of cheese that you get um, that's in the little pieces of uh, plastic isn't even real cheese. What it is is it's pasteurized, preservative-packed fake cheese 
and then they turn it into a liquid and then they solidify it and then they slice it like it's real cheese. Wow. I, I, I recommend, especially even in a keto diet, which a, a big allotment of your fat comes from dairy. Look, I'm a big fan of dairy when it's all natural um, and, and it has a, a lot of huge health benefits. But when you take all the fake cheese that's being pumped into our our school systems, our, our uh, grocery stores, uh, our institutions, it's, it's literally killing us. I mean it, it's literally putting our country down. How are you able to say in your military – how long have you been doing the keto diet? Um, it, what's interesting is I've been I've done the keto diet on and off for about 15 years, and uh, I started doing the keto diet overseas um, because of the way that we operated. Where uh, if we did reverse cycle, we wouldn't eat for 12 to 16 hours, and then when we did eat, um, we didn't have a lot of food options, and to stay eating clean, um, we could allocate a specific amount of fats. And that would allow us to operate. And so you could eat clean, stay lean, and have high performance. What people don't understand is uh, when you're in a state of ketosis, you have a lot of good cognitive clarity in the way you think um, because you're not cluttered by all the glycogen that's flushing through your brain because of the inconsistencies in your insulin level changing your blood sugar constantly. And so you don't go through these vicious cycles of these great ups where you're on this sugar high and then followed by this uh, significant crash. You're really even uh, in your energy level. You don't have an appetite, so you don't crave food because that mechanism of craving comes from sugar. Uh, when you're when uh, when sugar's in your system, you crave it because it's a drug. Uh, what people don't understand is sugar is more addictive than cocaine. And so the reason why you uh, – when you walk by a candy aisle or you smell a donut or you know you see your favorite pastry, the reason you crave it like a drug is because it is a drug. It releases the same chemicals that cocaine releases in your system and has a more impactful, um, more significant impact uh, to that craving system because your body depends on it for survival. And so when you reduce that or eliminate that, it reduces that craving, making you more clear, uh, almost clairvoyant in a sense, uh, just to over-dramatize it. But it's, it, it, it actually has a lot of benefits outside of the uh, physical benefits. So between that 12 and 16 hours, what do you use to sustain yourself, especially if you're, if you're, if you're uh, you know, operating at a high level? Absolutely nothing. You don't need it. And, and the way that your body – Here's how it works when you – and everybody who does the keto diet, what I recommend is one, you, you start getting into intermittent fasting, which is a, a, a fast of not eating. Uh, you could have coffee. You could have tea. You could have water, but you don't eat for 12 to 16 hours, which is easy because sleep is included in that fast. And what people don't realize is your body is very efficient at storing, storing glycogen. In fact, your organs are a safe haven for glycogen stores. So even to get in ketosis, it's very difficult to do because your body is full of this, this, this carbohydrate on board as an energy source. So when you're, when you're looking at 12 to 16 hours not eating, your body is trickling the glycogen that it has on board that's not readily available through your liver but through your organs providing you energy 
but being very tactful at utilizing the the uh, the levels of triglycerides and the fat that's flowing through your body. And you will be hungry when you start when you start it off for the first time, but your body adapts, and then you start losing the cravings, and then you start uh, uh, getting very good at performing. Now, what I will tell people is you're allowed 50 grams of carbohydrates typically a day. And that the reason you're allotted that, which uh, to, to put in perspective, 50 grams of carbohydrates would be uh, like a protein bar has about 17 to 25 grams of, of uh, glycogen in it uh, or of carbohydrates in it. So you could get away with eating a couple of those and still be okay. The, the key is not to take you out of ketosis, but when you're operating and you're doing high-performance activity, there's nothing wrong with upping your carbohydrates. Sugar is the enemy. You don't need sugar. But your carbohydrates, you could uptake your carbohydrates. And then if you really have to, you could take uh, sugar, but always source your sugar from uh, natural foods like fruit. Fructose is a perfect source of high-energy sugar that could be leveraged to uh, get it into your bloodstream and then use it on board for an immediate fuel store that you'll burn immediately for with perceived uh, energy. And that way it's not stored as glycogen after the fact. I think I do something uh, somewhat similar to that because we normally eat – I normally eat at like like 5 or 6 p.m. And then I'll wake up at, you know, like uh, like, like 7 and then I'll have a, I'll have um, – a yogurt and a little oatmeal and um, like if I'm going for a run and then I'll have a little cutie, like a, one of those orange halos. Mm-hmm. And then um, it's like, you know, like you said, it's like cocaine, dude. And I'm, I'm like awake after that. I go for a run and it kind of like fuels me. And is that kind of like, 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 like what it's like using the, the sugar to kind of uh, like the sugar from fruit to kind of boost your energy level? Yeah, one hundred percent, and that's it's it's a it's a tactic that's been used by athletes uh, since the beginning, which is called carb loading. Uh, you're just being real creative on the timing of that carb load, and right before exercise is you know thirty minutes before you actually exercise, you should utilize that fuel store as a benefit. I I like to use caffeine. Uh, instead of sugar because caffeine uh, accelerates a whole bunch of perceived um, um, I guess you know ways that your your mind and your body react and it also has a scientifically proven benefit for uh, output for physical output and so I use that and and what people don't understand about the keto diet is when you eat meat uh, let's just say you eat chicken if you eat too much meat, you actually convert the protein into glycogen. So that's how that's how creative and adaptable your body is at wanting to convert that into readily available energy. Uh, the only thing you're doing in keto is you're basically uh, tricking your body to convert the switch so that you're you're not uh, you're you don't have to be incapacitated. And you work more optimal. What people say, and I agree with this, some people say that you become almost like uh, uh, prey driven, like you become a hunter because you could see clearer, you could think clearer. 
And I think there's something to that when it comes to feast and famine. When you're hungry because you haven't eaten, you're more focused and you're more driven and you could think clearer and you could see better. And all your senses aren't distracted by this, this feast because you, you're, you're craving it. And then when you eat it, it, you can go through this period of feast. And so what I tell people uh, who are especially who are doing the, uh, the keto diet cold turkey is have a cheat day. You know, have a cheat day where you eat whatever you want to eat and then do a 24-hour fast after you do that to clean your system and to get back into keto and go through that feast and famine phase, the most natural and primal um, way that we used to live. And you'll be closer to feeling healthy and you'll see the results in all your statistics. I mean, your blood, your cholesterol, everything will be better. Um, yeah, I just, I'm a big believer in it, but it, I'm a believer in it because it's science. It's not because uh, it's theoretical. Sure. When you, when you fast, not to say a 24 hour fast, like how does that go? What do you, do you just, do you drink anything? Do you drink carbs? Like what, like what do you do? Absolutely. So what's interesting about the fasting thing is the army has made us good at fasting. When you're in the army and you go to bed at nine, 10 o'clock at night, you wake up and you do PT at zero six thirty in the morning. Right. Well, we never ate breakfast before we PT. So you're actually doing fasted cardio, which is really beneficial to your health. That's why we stayed so lean because you don't have glycogen on board. So what you're burning is fat immediately when you start doing cardiovascular output. And so we ate breakfast afterwards and then we did a, essentially a 12-hour fast. So when you fast 12, 16, 24 hours, you don't eat anything. The only thing you put in your body is water, tea, or coffee. And, it, and it's a uh, it, the, the benefit is the biggest benefit and the best way to describe this is when you fast, you're basically giving, you're not basically, you are giving your body a break. When your body gets a break, there's a natural process that takes, takes place. The best way to describe it is essentially your organs shrink, uh, your intestines shrink because nothing's going through it. Well, in the reintroduction of food, you get this vascular flush of blood rushing through your organs. When that happens, that is a natural antioxidant and a natural way to rid your body of carcinogens. It is proven that fasting uh, increases uh, your ability to overcome cancers, carcinogens, and all these toxins that are put in our body because you're giving your body a break and allowing all these all this bad stuff that's collected in your body to be flushed out with the input of that uh, reintroduction of carbohydrates. So fasting, I, the way I do it is five days a week, I do 12 to 16 hour fast, and one day a week, because I'll have a cheat day on Sunday, um, I'll do a 24 hour fast on Monday. And so if I go to bed, at if I eat dinner, I usually have a date late dinner that Sunday, and eat whatever I want, I'm carb loading. I mean, I'm eating whatever I want. Well, when I eat a really crappy meal full of carbohydrates when I wake up and I'm used to fasting, I'm not hungry until the next day. And so if I went, if I ate my last meal at eight o'clock that night, I only have to wait till eight o'clock that night to eat my next meal. And I fasted for a 24, 24 uh, hour period. And it's not bad. It's actually a really easy, uh, uh, really easy fast because your body's used to having, not used to having all those carbs on board. And then you cheated and now you have a crap ton of carbohydrates on board and you're not even hungry. In fact, 
after going from keto to back and forth, your system does not like you eating a lot of crap or a lot of carbohydrates. You you don't even want to go back because you like how you feel. For the most part, the, the experience that I've had and people have had is you like how you feel on keto. And so you don't want to ever go back to, to eating regular. You know, it's so interesting, you know, when you when you start talking about, you know, the science and, you know, how the body works and, you know, trying to, you know, optimize, optimize it in a way. You know, it, it's it's really interesting when you really start getting into it. So. Yeah. So how did you, um, how did you, uh, how did Field Craft Survival start? You know, how did you, like, where did that take place at? You know, when I, I started Field Craft Survival, I was actually in a, uh, a Connex shipping container in Pakistan. And I was doing a contract for the government and I was miserable, man. I, I mean, I got paid really well. I mean, I made a lot of money overseas for doing my job and but I wasn't happy I wasn't fulfilled and so I wanted to do something different and I decided you know everybody in my with my background does a tactical uh, company because it's easy I mean it's easy to teach tactics because that's really what we've done our entire careers well uh, Philcraft I wanted to have a different genre and I was very interested in survival because I was interested in overlanding because I I've, I've always been a jeeper and I've always overlanded and I did it in the military and I felt like I had a whole bunch of lessons learned that I could kind of convey to the public and I thought survival was a an amazing genre that really wasn't done well and so I decided to do it and realized there wasn't a lot of people in my space. I mean I I actually can't even name one that's kind of doing what we're doing so it was an easy um bridge the gap or, or gap the bridge, however you want to put it. And it, it's, it's been successful because, um, when you take all those experiences in special operations and look for an outlet in order to convey to, uh, uh, you know, a, a customer base, it, it's survival because you've learned so much in how to survive in the military. And so that's, that's what I wanted to do. I, and I have a passion for it. How would you say, you know, say from the beginning, uh, how has Fieldcraft Survival changed since, say, your initial idea in the uh, when you're in the Connex? That's a good question. I mean, we've changed a little bit. I mean, my mission statement has always remained the same, whereby uh, I want to train, educate, educate, and equip. Uh, but the equip wasn't really there because I didn't know equipment. I didn't know how to manufacture how to source manufacturers. I didn't understand supply chain management. And so I had a lot of ideas. Um, we just launched a piece of equipment today. And it, it took it takes a long time in business to get to that point. So we started out with mindset. We started with a small survival uh, kit. We started with some tactical training courses. But as we've evolved, we've gotten into mobility. And we've gotten more away from tactics. And now we're focusing uh, this year on sustainment and survival, uh, which is looking at power consumption, you know, wind, solar, rain. Um, I, hell, I did a class on jarring where I went and I bought all this jarring material to learn how to preserve and can food. Uh, so it's, it, it, it does change and it evolves. And I, that, that's one of the reasons I love what we do in survival. 
Yeah, I I couldn't really think of anybody else who's who's doing what you're doing either. You know, because it's uh, you know, there's you know, in in the city, you know, like um, I'm, I was always looking for like some kind of equipment. You know, I always carried a backpack and you know a, a water bottle, and I always had a little first aid kit in my backpack. And you know, some people would be like, "What do you need a first aid kit for?" You know, and it's like just in case, man, you know, it's like, just in case what it's like, well, in case something happens, you know, and I think generally there's a lot of people out there that, you know, it kind of escapes them, you know, because it's so good in the United States that things won't go 100% according to the plan perfectly every day. And I think that there's, I, I think that there's an issue. I think that there's a lot of people that, uh, that generally are, are missing, uh, are, are missing, like, you know, like they're, they're actually essentially waiting for a life lesson to happen. Yeah. I, I, I'm big on educating people that the worst case scenario is not the time when to decide to change your life. Because if you do get through it, um, it will definitely change your life, but, uh, we should look at things, uh, you know, with understanding statistics even, I mean, I'm big on looking at analytics and, you know, accidents or is a leading cause of death in America, in the world. And so when you just look at accidents alone, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be a prepper. You don't have to have a prepper mindset to think of the worst case scenario. You just have to look at the statistics at the, at the best case scenario of when things just go wrong. I mean, there's 9 million car accidents a year. The tens of thousands of people die every year from just accidents. Um, tens of thousands in vehicle accidents, hundreds of thousands from just casual accidents. And when you look at like just a med kit, like you said, you know, we grew up that way where preparedness was part of the curriculum. Preparedness was part of the profession. Well, when you're living in the world, uh, just because, you know, your computer bag and your civilian clothing and your you know commuter car has been exchanged for what you used to look as as your level of preparedness doesn't mean you can't have a med bag doesn't mean you can't have a go rig um doesn't mean you can't have the mindset and so we're survive you know we're we're we are naturally survivalist because we are where we got today because of our ancestors before us and they're suffering. I mean, if it wasn't for their suffering and their willingness to survive, we wouldn't be in the flesh and bones that we're in today. So I take that serious when kind of, you know, when you're looking at sustaining life and protecting life, uh, because that's what I did in the military. But we so neglect that and are so complacent to that in our everyday lives because we're very comfortable. Uh, my whole thing is if you if you have the mindset to prepare for the worst case scenario, then everything between just, you know, the best case scenario and the worst case scenario is going to be covered because you thought about it, because you have the equipment, because you have the training. And, uh, and I think that's what matters when it comes to the, the worst case scenario happening in your life. Does Fieldcraft Survival offer a, say, like a basic uh, med kit? We do. We, we, we have, you know, I would consider the basic med kit the stop the bleed med kit. We have a it's called the BHRK, the Basic Hemorrhage Response Kit, and it's a small med kit that stops the bleed. That, in conjunction with a 
a cat tourniquet, which we sell as well, is is uh, a uh, a large equipment gap in in stopping what we see on an everyday basis uh, in accidents uh, in everyday bleeds. So yeah, we have everything from that to the advancement of that, and I, I think it's important. I know there's another uh, another tourniquet out there. What's it called, man? It's called the uh, the rat's tourniquet. And I heard from somebody saying that, you know, obviously everybody wants to have a cat tourniquet, but they say that rats tourniquets are, are, are better for small children and even animals. Do you, do you know, do you know anything about that? Yeah. So the guy who owns, the guy who made the rats tourniquets, a friend of mine, and, uh, I'm in agreement with that. I mean, Look, the CAT tourniquet, the combat application tourniquet made by North American Rescue, they have the new Gen 7 now. It's a very good tourniquet. It's the same current tourniquet that I use in combat. But when I was a contractor, um, I had to use rat tourniquets because, one, I couldn't infiltrate into these countries like Yemen and Pakistan and you know all, Libya, all over the world with a CAT tourniquet because it looks like a military piece of equipment. Yeah. But a rat application tourniquet, a rat's tourniquet, looks like a piece of bungee. And so when you look at um, – there is some inconsistencies and some problems that rat has had in trying to get validated. And it's for a good reason. But I think when you look at the overall uh, capabilities, it, it's quite capable of stopping the bleed. And you need a, a separate – uh, course of action and separate piece of equipment to address animals and small children. I mean, if you're looking at a toddler and an infant, if they break or fracture anything and they start bleeding out, what are you going to ignore it? You're, are you just going to say, hey, the cat doesn't fit, so I'm not going to use it? No. You'd be prepared for that. And I think a, a rat fits in that gap as well. Up to what age do you think, um, you know, like a kid can, uh, a cat tourniquet would be good for a kid? Um, it depends, you know, it obviously depends on the, the physical, uh, profile of the person, but generally speaking, I would say that, um, when a child enters, uh, into elementary school, which is, uh, about, uh, six, seven years old, they, they're pretty good for a cat. I mean, the, the only issues that I've seen is it depends on the, the physical profile. Cause I mean, when I was in Africa, for example, a cat was very difficult to apply to an African because African people, by nature, by evolution, don't have very vascular systems. They don't have veins pumping through their arms, and so they're very skinny, and they're very uh, malnutrition or malnourished. Um, so, and that's that's in teenagers uh, and sometimes uh, grown adults. So I'd say it just depends, and uh, I would have both. I mean, look, the reality is a rat tourniquet is fifteen bucks. A cat tourniquet is twenty nine ninety nine, and so these are the things that it's no excuse. I mean, you go to eat a meal at any restaurant with your spouse, and you're paying twenty nine ninety five. Skip a meal and buy a, a cat tourniquet. I mean, I, I would do more than that because cat tourniquets will save your life. But it's like it's not a big deal because it's it's not that expensive, and it's real easy to learn. Right. And you offer training for that too, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. So we do, I mean, full spectrum, man. We do tactical training, med training, mindset training. I just did a soft, a special operations prep training class. 
Uh, we have overland training. We pretty much do it all. But yeah, it's it's all available on our website. What would you say is on the horizon for fieldcraft survival? Uh, I would say on the horizon in the short term, which is this year, uh, going into this year, uh, we have a booth at Overland Expo West. We'll be highlighting a lot of the gear that we're coming out with. Uh, we're going to start getting more into overlanding, which includes motorcycles, um, includes overlanding with a, a go rig, which is an action for us. It's the coin term for a, an actual rig that's capable of overland movement in a survival bug out situation for a long period of or an extended period of time. And then, you know, coming up with more products, uh, more mindset classes, and then me personally doing more speaking engagements throughout the year. How is um, how is the success or not success, but the um, how's it going getting the Special Forces and Ranger Museum up? Uh, it's going well. We actually will find out February 9th, actually this weekend, we'll find out if we got approval. Um, and, you know, I'm not I'm not afraid to say this out loud. We're, we're actually looking for approval from uh, the family of Pat Tillman because we want to name the museum after Pat Tillman. And, you know, Pat Tillman was an Army Ranger who was killed in combat. Unfortunately, it was a, a really bad situation in which he was killed. But he's he was a an Arizona uh, native in the fact that he, he played for the Arizona Cardinals. Um, and he was, he gave up that career and that freedom to go defend his country. And so when it comes to highlighting the history, the lineage and the esprit de corps of the army ranger and special forces units, I think it's important that we name it after somebody. Uh, and it means something. And I think Pat Tillman is reflective of that. And we'll find out this weekend. So it's after that, it's it's pretty easy. We, we got the nonprofit already lined out. And we're gonna line up uh, some education on everything and start building. We already got the approval for the land from the mayor of Prescott Valley, Cal Paguda, and also the Fane family. So we just got to tie up some uh, some other things, and we'll get that lined out. That's awesome. His uh, his brother was an Army Ranger too, wasn't he? Yeah, I believe so. Is is uh, he? I mean, he has a he has a, a pretty significant line of patriots in his family, and um, you know, unfortunate circumstances. But the fact that uh, he gave up millions of dollars to serve his country is a example for everybody to follow. And the fact that his family served as well, I mean, that's that's just the the, the core of our country as a whole. Yeah, I um, I remember when when he did that, and I was I was absolutely humbled by it. And I think a lot of people were. And uh, I remember him running onto the football field with the American flag. And I was like, man, this guy's awesome. You know, and then he, you know, he turned down his contract and went to the enlisted in the army. And, uh, you know, guys just even still to, to today, guys aren't doing that. You know, he's he stands in a league of his own, you know, truly humbling. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, he, you know, we all have our calling. We just we just need to. uh understand that the reason that we have all the freedoms and luxuries to voice our opinion, you know, heckle people on social media and just kind of live the free life that we live. Um, it's because of the sacrifices of guys like Pat Tillman and our military. And, you know, there's an obligation in my opinion for people to serve and for people to, to, uh, pick up the torch and, you know, raise the flag and, and stand for something 
And I think it, we should put our country first in a lot of the ways that we have it in the uh, last couple of years leading up to today. Yeah, I agree 100%, man. When 9-11 happened, you know, I, I immediately felt like, I'm like, yeah, I got to I gotta do something, you know. And, and I wasn't alone because, you know, the recruiting office was, was full. And, uh, you know, going to basic, you know, there was we had a ton of people there. And uh, I think that today's generation, they haven't had their, you know, their 9-11. They haven't had their, you know, their uh, maybe like that, uh, you know, that uh, something niching at them to, to get them to go out there, you know? 100%, man. Totally agree. So how's your, uh, how's your book? How's your book coming along? It's grinding along, man. I, I have a release date of July 4th. I'm shooting for uh, – I had I had think, you know, I've gotten a whole bunch of questions. I'm like, how how does the process work? Why do you need so much money? And it's a difficult process. You know, a lot of people don't realize that to get a book even self-published is difficult to do because you have to pay graphic designers. You have to pay uh, uh, editors. You have to pay the printing press. And then you have to pay for the marketing to be able to release it. I mean, it's not an easy undertaking. I'm blessed because I have a marketing apparatus to be able to launch the book. So it will sell a couple, but outside of that, like to get it into the spaces you need to get it into, you have to be very uh, intelligent on how you disseminate that. So uh, it's going along well and I'm excited about it and I'm looking forward to it. Are you, is that going to be available like hardback and, 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 or is it just an ebook? No, no, no. It will be available as a hard copy, uh, and then I'll probably be selling it on my website, and then Barnes & Noble, Amazon will pick it up, and then I'm working with a guy right now on figuring that out, and then uh, I will have a PDF copy. And for everybody who's donated to the GoFundMe, uh, I will provide an e-electronic uh, copy of that book via PDF, and then uh, everybody who donated over $100 on the GoFundMe page will get a uh, autographed copy of the book, a hard copy of the book. Awesome, man. Yeah, I'm definitely. Um, I'll I'll definitely read that when it comes out. But I would I would really like to thank you for coming onto the podcast, man. Uh, it's it's been a great experience, uh, humbling. Um, you know, I, I'd like to thank you for your service and and everything that you've done for this country. No, thank you, man. Thanks for having me, and thanks for what you're doing. I think uh, just you know continuing to educate, continuing to uh, speak with. Uh, uh, an opinion and voice and, you know, and narrowing kind of the things that you've, uh, that you talk about in your podcast or is important to highlight, uh, in creating the next generation of, uh, you know, selfless, selfless servants. And I think you're uh, doing a good job at it. So thanks. It's an honor to have, uh, been on your podcast. So thank you for having me. Thanks a lot, Mike. And, uh, that's going to be it for tonight, guys. And this is a uh, pre out. Oh.